All right, we've been going through the book of 50 Core Truths of the Christian Faith. Sometimes it is excellent, sometimes it's not. And uh, when I was preparing for this uh, study today for justification and adoption, which are two important elements of what it means to be a Christian. Here lately, what we've done is we've, we've taken the idea of conversion, how you become a Christian, we've stretched it out, and we're just sort of looking at all of the different aspects of what it looks like to be a Christian, what it means to be a Christian, and um, we're at justification and adoption. And uh, going through the book, I don't know if you're reading it or not, the lesson for today, um, justification and then adoption was supposed to be next week. It just wasn't that good to me. I feel like the book started out great, and then uh, I don't know if he got tired of writing it halfway through and is like uh, the Gersh writer or something. So I had to go and do some other study today to get the doctrine of justification and the doctrine of adoption. And both of these are important. And they're worth our consideration, especially as evangelicals. So as Baptists, we have a high view of conversion. What I mean is we, we really believe that without Christ, people go to hell. Right? So we believe, I mean, we genuinely believe that but on the other side of that coin, we also believe that conversion, what God does in our hearts when we believe, is so dramatic that there is an absolute and eternal change in our lives. That it's not just fire insurance, we're going to go to heaven. There's so much more involved in what it means to be a Christian. And so that's sort of what we're doing here, talking about uh, justification and adoption. So let me pray, and then we'll get started. Uh, before I pray, get your heads back up. You know, you say that in a Baptist church, everybody's head goes down. Um, next week, John is teaching, and I guess Mike will be teaching the week after that. As you think of it, because I won't be able to tell you this, I'll be in New Orleans Seminary uh, the, the two weeks from now. I'll be in New Orleans uh, Baptist Theological Seminary. Southern Baptist, we have six seminaries. And uh, we have two of them that do not have presidents right now. New Orleans uh, will, does not have a president. Southwestern does not have a president. Uh, in fact, our executive committee does not have a president. Uh, there's another. What else doesn't have a president? You remember Ryan? Okay, he doesn't remember. Ryan doesn't care about these things as much as that. The IMB just got a president. So, Paul, yeah, just got a president. So, New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary has asked me to come and preach uh, their their spring revival. So, when you're preaching to church folks, you're all here, you love the Bible, you chose to come on a Wednesday night, you want to hear it, you're ready to hear something. Seminarians, guys that want to be in ministry are not there yet and are learning. Oftentimes, they've got just enough. Like, think about someone that's studying karate that gets to a yellow belt. You know, just enough karate to get your rear end kicked real bad. <laughs> a lot of times, guys in seminaries know just enough about church and theology. They think they can do it all. It is a hard place to preach, seminarians. I know that because I was a seminarian, and I sat out there and judged terribly everybody that preached until I started preaching and figured out, oh, this is really harder than it, than it looks. So pray, yeah, so pray that the Lord will uh, use those three nights, 
are three mornings, be 11 o'clock every, every morning, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday of that week, that God will use His Word to awaken the hearts of guys, to, to love Christ above all things, to, to value Jesus above ministry. Oftentimes you get caught in ministry and becomes, you're driven in this occupation and you forget that, that to lead well in ministry, you, you've got to be the lead worshiper, the person that loves Christ, that's pointing your church to, to the Bible. And so as you think of it, I would appreciate you praying for us as we travel that week and go there. I'm thankful to get to do it. New Orleans is where I graduated. I'm thankful for the seminary. It's where I learned how to do something with the Bible. So just pray that the Lord will, um, as you think of it, pray that the Lord will be honored. All right, let's pray together. We'll get started here. Father in heaven, we thank you for the grace you've given us in Jesus. We thank you that you've taken us from death into life and that it is by grace we pray that you give us hearts to love Christ more, that as we think about justification, just thinking about what that means. God, make it so that we walk out of here more in love with Christ, more thrilled about the gospel, and wanting to see other people come to Jesus. And so, Lord, speak to us through your word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's talk about justification first. You'll notice on your handout, I have a summary there. That justification, it's important to get this right. Because some of us have this shortened version of what justification is. Anybody can recite the cliche about justification? Anybody know it? Just as if I never sinned. Justification. That was kind of the way you used to memorize what it means. That I've been justified, that means it's just as if I never sinned. Well, that's okay. But it's not the whole story. Right there in blue, you've got um, the two parts. Justification is the mighty act of God by which he declares people not guilty. So that's the just as if I'd never sinned, but righteous instead. So it's not just you're not guilty, it's you're not guilty. And then the other side of the coin is you're righteous instead. How does he do it? By imputing the perfect righteousness of Christ to us. That is a vital part of salvation. That we're not just forgiven of our sins. That is a wonderful truth, and I'm very thankful for that. You should be, and we should fall on our knees and thank God for that. But on top of, on top of having our sins forgiven, we now have the righteousness of Jesus put on us. We're going to talk about that tonight. In fact, I'll probably say it a couple of different ways. You may even think that preacher repeats himself. I repeat myself uh, because you're not getting it. I had to keep saying it over and over again. Justification. What is justification? It is, a, it is a forensic word. Forensic. That means uh, legal. Justification is a legal declaration which pronounces sinful people not guilty, but righteous instead. You see me, what I've written down there? Justification has two aspects. Forgiveness of sin. So we got that. And then the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. So if you were to think about um, salvation happening with us walking into God's courtroom, I hate to use the terminology, but it helps us think it through. God is the ultimate holy judge, and as the judge, he must, by virtue of justice, bring the penalty down. We're guilty and must be punished, so that's what we deserve. That is justice. 
And justification, what happens at the cross, justification is this judge not only not holding us responsible, but also looking at us differently, as if, as if we were perfect, the perfect righteousness of Christ. This doctrine, if understood correctly, this doctrine changes really the whole way you look at Christianity. Justification, let me, let me say it another way. Justification, um, when I talk about justification, I'm talking about grace, you know, grace, faith, Christ, grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone. So we're saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. That justification, it is the major tenet of the Protestant Reformation. That is to say, if this didn't exist, if we didn't have the doctrine of justification by faith, then we would still be Catholic. Now, here's a good place to pause. A good place to pause and talk about the difference between Protestants and Catholics. There, there is a difference. And I feel like the times that I've uh, brought this up, oftentimes have been accused of talking, uh, of, of bashing Catholics. We, we never want to do that. But we must recognize that there, there are several differences between what it means to be a Protestant, even the word itself, to protest against, to be a Protestant and being Catholic. And the one determining factor that Martin Luther discovered from reading the book of Romans was this doctrine, justification by faith. That we are now forgiven and imputed with the righteousness of Christ through faith and not by works. That one doctrine changed. Now, there are several other things that we would disagree with with the Catholic Church. Uh, many the views on well, the views of the Pope, views on Mary. We only have one inter interceder, that is Christ, one who intercedes for us, not Mary. Uh, views on the authority of the Bible, that our authority under God is the Bible and the Bible alone, not another man or tradition. Um, how we view, well, there's several things. But, but the difference was exposed at its core with this one doctrine that we don't really talk that much about. But here's the dividing line. Now, people will say, do you think, are there devout Catholics that go to heaven? Right. So the way I would answer that is, if people adhere closely to the teaching of the Catholic Church, they do not. If there are people that are going to a Catholic, that are Catholic, have remained Catholic, and have believed that they are saved by faith alone and Christ alone, yes. You with me so far? Okay. There, there is a, there's a wide chasm of how, what we believe about baptism. We don't believe that water baptism has any salvific power. It is nothing but an indication, a display of what God has done in us, right? The, the baptism in the Catholic Church has, has grace-giving ability. The sacraments, grace-giving. Uh, the view of, of the Mass, where transubstantiation, that, that, that the body of Christ genuinely shows up. So there are multiplied differences, but at the root of the difference 
is this one little doctrine. Justification by faith. So let's go through. You've got a, a, you see a number one down there at the bottom. I'm not going to jump to it first. I want to speak um, first about justification and how it happens. Justification comes after our faith. It is a response. It is God's response to our faith. So we believe, and once we believe, we are justified. Right? So the, 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 the passage I've used is Romans chapter 3, uh, verse 26. We're going to spend a lot of time in Romans. Romans chapter 3, verse 26. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So when you have faith in Jesus, conversion happens, and then justification is a result of conversion. It is an application of what has happened in you. It is now you're changed, and with that change, it is God declaring you no longer stand guilty under punishment. You with me so far? Okay. Justification by faith comes after. Um, it is God's response to faith. Now, let's go. Let's just start number one. I gave you five or six or seven of these. How many did I give? Six. I have seven. Six. Okay, yeah. Let's go through it. Don't, don't turn the page yet. I'm on, still on page number one. <coughs> Justification is by faith and not by work. This is an important difference between Protestants and how we view salvation and the Catholic Church. This is, this is part of what led to the split in 1517, Protestant Reformation. Romans chapter 3, verse 28. For we hold that one is justified, this is Paul writing in Romans, one is justified by faith and that is apart from works. Now, that seems like sort of basic Christianity for most of us, but oftentimes we, we will say we believe it is by God's grace, but we end up practically living as if we are somehow earning. Right? So, so we say it, but then we feel like that there is this scale somewhere. If I do enough good, it's going to outweigh the bad, and I'll get into heaven. And I don't know where that doctrine comes from. It's in cartoons or something maybe, but it's not from the Bible. The Bible teaches that there's nothing we can do, not a thing. That without the intervention of God through Jesus, then we still stand condemned in our sins, right? And the words, the words condemnation are, are right words. To say someone is condemned is right. We stand condemned before God unless there's intervention, unless we come to Christ in faith. And once we're converted, then the sentence is justification. So justification by faith and not works. Let me tell you something else about justification. Uh, justification, um, justification brings peace with God, right? Peace with God. It's what Paul writes in Romans chapter five, verse one. Paul says, "Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, so we've been faith happened, and now we're justified. You see, believed." Justified. So we've been justified by faith. Since that has happened, we now have peace with God through Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ. So what does justification do? Not only forgives our sins, it makes it so that now I am not an enemy of God anymore. This is going to be why adoption is so 
um, is, is so remarkable because without Christ, we are God's enemies. We are sinners deserving punishment. We stand as enemies to God. And adoption is remarkable, and I'm skipping ahead, but adoption is remarkable because we, were, we weren't just beautiful little children needing a home. We were enemies, right? So I, I'm getting ahead of myself, but that's what makes it so remarkable. And so justification by faith uh, brings, brings peace with God. Now look, it's no small thing to have peace with God. It is no small thing. You know the passage, I've been preaching it, reading it twice now. I'll do it a third time on Sunday. And at the end of, of Paul's, at the end of Paul's uh, greeting in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, there at the end, what he says there, is, his pastoral prayer for these people he's never met is grace to you and peace. It is a pastoral prayer. If you sometimes wonder what you should pray for someone, you're not sure what to pray for a person. This is what I do this all the time. If I don't know exactly what to pray for someone, I take the, the, the model from Paul and I pray that God's grace will work in your life and your home and that the peace of God might rest on you, your home. And that's going to work itself out in a hundred different ways. What is, it to have, what is it to have peace with God? Okay, for those of you that are, so we're here, we're believers already. We have peace with God through Christ, but our own sin. So we're justified, but we're not fully glorified, right? We're justified positionally in that uh, we no longer stand under the judgment of God, but we're sinners still. I mean, anybody here? It's Wednesday. Any of you started after church Sunday and made it this far not sinned? Can you imagine can you imagine, there used to be a doctrine, uh, the Arminians would have this doctrine of perfection. This is where John Wesley sort of came off the rails. He thought that, uh, I think it's because they didn't have HBO, HBO or something. He, he, thought you, he thought you could live and be perfect. And he didn't know some of the people I know. <laughs> or just, even myself, right? I mean... So, so aren't you glad that your salvation is not dependent on you being able to not sin anymore? These are some of the arguments that went on early in Christianity was, after, what do you do with people after, that sin after baptism? Or when the, when the church is being persecuted in the first and second, in the second, third century, one of the biggest debates they had was when people were, were under persecution and then renounced Christ, and once the persecution stopped, they wanted to come back to church. Do we let those people in? And the truth of the matter is, this doctrine speaks to that. Right? This, this speaks to who I am and who God has made me in Christ. To, to know that I have peace with God. To know that although you from Sunday to Wednesday have committed sins big and small that would alienate you from God, that you continually can go to the cross, and there at the cross we have peace with God. It, there, it is no small thing for you to, to drink in the doctrine of justification. To have peace with God is one of the greatest things, to be able to sleep at night when, when you ought not to be able to sleep at night. Justification says we have peace with God. Let me give you a... Third or fourth one. 
Justification is a, is, it's a, it's a legal, so it's a legal declaration. <clears throat> Romans is a good place to go. Uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 33 and 34. It is a, that those verses are rejoice-worthy to me. Paul writes, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, so God is the one justifying. If that's the case, who then can condemn? Now stop there. Do you see how justification is contrasted with, with the word condemn? They're put there so they can help us identify each word. We are able to define justification because we know what condemnation means. It's the opposite of justification. Then we look over here at justification. We're able to define it because we know what condemnation means. It is the opposite of condemnation. So Paul is saying if God has justified, we know what that means. If he's done that, the, the rhetorical device here is who can condemn you? And the obvious answer is nobody. This is a beautiful statement here. Who, who then is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. That is, a, that is worth you saying praise the Lord to. You know why? Because it's the blood of... It's the, he's interceding with His own blood. If the accuser stands and points at you, and he rightly does, and he points at me and he says... You know, Clint is, is short-tempered and, and, and prideful and all these things he can list up about me and they're true things that I ought to be punished for, but they're interceding as the blood of Jesus that says, no, he's justified, he's not guilty. In fact, not only that, that blood is his righteousness. We'll get, we'll get to that in a moment, but it's, it is so... It is so good. A legal declaration that you no longer stand guilty. You're no longer on the Green Mile. Remember that movie? Y'all remember the Green Mile? Anybody see that movie? Where you, so it's, it's, it's Dead Man's Row, right? You're no longer there. That's where we, all, we were born onto the Green Mile. And we've been taken off of it. This is a beautiful picture of who we are. So when, when, when you're converted... This is what happens. Justification. In fact, you keep pressing on that a little bit. Justification means that we have no, we have no penalty to pay for our sin. Okay, this is where Christians don't... This is where we don't think rightly about the cross. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. See the text? There is therefore now no condemnation. Remember, condemnation is the opposite opposite of justification. There now is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you might even want to put in parentheses in your mind, because we've been justified. Because we've been justified. Justification means we have no penalty to pay for our sins. Okay, so all of you sinners, y'all admitted, from Sunday to Wednesday you've committed sins. Everybody, so nobody perfect, right? You've, you've committed sins up to maybe even today. Maybe even right now. You might be even thinking ugly things about me and you're sinning. Right? So, sins big and small. Big and small. Giant and minute. Every one of them deserves a terrible penalty. And if you are in Christ, 
then that penalty has already been placed on Jesus at the cross. That's, you are, you probably have said it kidding, but there have been days and weeks you thought, what am I being punished for? Ever thought that? What am I, for what? I mean, when it rains, it pours, all these terrible things are happening. I, I feel like I'm being punished for something. That, uh, I understand the sentiment behind that. That is not a Christian thing to say. You are not being punished for anything. You are not going to be punished for your sins that you have committed in the past, that you are committing today, right now. You will not be punished for your sins in the future. You will not be punished for those. If you are in Christ, the punishment for that sin has been placed on Jesus. So, so that needs to sink deep. I'm not saying that there won't be natural consequences if you uh, become an alcoholic. There will be natural consequences that happen down the road, the things that, that will go on. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that the, the legal demand that our sin has that calls for justice, that received justice at the cross of Jesus. So that it's not going, you're not being punished for that. Now, you, you will be disciplined. The Bible teaches that the Lord disciplines those He loves. The Lord dis disciplines those He loves, and some days I think I'm His favorite. <laughs> right? I mean, because you get all this discipline. Sometimes I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm His favorite. That is not indeed punishment. Justification. So, justification. Let me, let me drop down to the fifth one. <clears throat> fifth one or sixth one? I got, see, I have five here and six here. I don't know what I did wrong. Justification means that we do, did I say that? That we do not stand guilty? I told you I was being repetitive, right? Yeah. Justification means we do not stand guilty. Notice it with me. The same verses that we looked at before can be applied here. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who then is to condemn? So that is something for you to think about in your own conscience. If you are a Christian and you commit sin, God has given you a conscience. Even if you're not a Christian, you have a conscience. And that guilty conscience can play havoc with you. To have a guilty conscience is a very difficult thing. And the, the, more, the more you're aware of your own sin, you come to grips with that, the more guilt you can bear. And that guilt... The guilt can be a gift from God if it drives you to claim the cross and forgiveness. If it sickens you. So, so think about Judas and Peter in the New Testament. Both betrayed Jesus. Both felt the guilt. Remember Judas? Tried to give the money back. Did. Judas' guilt drove him to suicide. Peter's drove him to Jesus. Okay, so, so what we have to remember is this rhetorical question in verse 33 of chapter 8. Who then, who will bring any charge against God's elect? The, it is a rhetorical device that, Peter, that Paul is saying, nobody can, not even you. You can. You don't have the right to pile guilt on yourself, to carry it around. 
Paul is saying, who can do this? Not even you. You can't. If you're in Christ, what's, what's happened is, regardless of how, how heinous the sin is, it's at the cross of Jesus. You now no longer stand under that judgment. That is a beautiful, a beautiful. In fact, the, the uh, reformers, the Protestant Reformation, we talked about that. The reformers called this the great exchange. The great exchange. Because, let's say you're forgiven. Okay, you're forgiven. But you're still neutral. You, you follow what I'm saying? In other words, let's say you, you, your sin is forgiven, you've been justified, so you're not being punished for that, but, but you're not perfect. So it's not enough for us to be morally neutral. It's not, it's not enough for us to be like Adam that came into this world before sin. See, what Jesus purchased for us at the cross is better than what Adam had in the garden. It's important to think about that. So this great exchange, what, what I mean is, it's, it's, uh, the, your last one is justification means, means imputed righteousness. A doctrine that Baptists don't think enough of is the imputed righteousness of Jesus. A great place to go for that is, um, is, is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. So here's the great exchange. Do you see it? For our sake, for those of us in Christ, for our sake, He, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin. So the exchange is, Jesus takes my sin, although he was perfect, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The exchange is this. My sin is given to Jesus, his righteousness is given to me. Now, you've heard me say earned righteousness before. Anybody ever heard me say that? The earned righteousness of Jesus. I've said that a time or two, and I get emails, and people will say, Jesus didn't have to earn righteousness. He came, he's fully God. He didn't have to earn. He was already righteous, right? Well, that's true. He is fully God, already righteous. But remember, when he lived as a man on earth, he fulfilled all the law of God, earning righteousness as a man. So, so he didn't just die in my place. So we, we hear that a lot, that Jesus died in your place. It's true, he did that. But not only did he die, he, he lived in my place. We all said we couldn't go from Sunday to Wednesday without sin. Jesus did and loved it. Fulfilled all of the law. He was completely perfect. He was the perfect man. He earned righteousness. So don't, don't go out here and say that preacher said that Jesus came and he wasn't righteous until he fulfilled the law. He certainly was righteous. By nature, of course. He also lived it. And that, that perfect earned righteousness, it's as if you did it. So now, when you're in Christ, your sins are taken away, but you're not left neutral. You now have, it's like you lived a perfect life. 
That, all of that earned righteousness is put into your account. On a lower, lesser, human way. I have two boys. One is 20 and one is 22. I long for the day when they can go and make their own living. And the older they get, the more expensive they are. One is still in college um, and has an account connected in some way to ours. And whenever that account hits the bottom, he calls on someone with a bigger account <laughs> to put into his account that he's not done anything to get. Take that Multiply it by 10 billion on 10 billion. And what we have received is this, this, this perfect, brilliant, holy righteousness. So when God looks at you, He can love you like He loves His Son Jesus. Because you in Christ have the righteousness of Christ. That's a whole lot better than you trying to earn your salvation. That's what grace is. The imputed righteousness of Jesus. Justification. So that has some, that has some implications. You could go to Romans. I probably have it here. Romans 5. If you wanted to explore it, you could talk about um, imputed guilt in Adam. So that in one, Romans 5, in one man we all died. Sin comes in the world through Adam and another man, Jesus. We're made right. So, so we have imputed, imputed guilt because we're human. We have imputed righteousness because of what Christ has done for us. That has implications. Let me talk about the implications very, very quickly. Here's one implication. Um, it gives hope for sinners. It gives great, this, the implication of justification gives great hope for sinners that have a past and you know your sin. A lot of you here, you came to Christ early in life. You've walked with the Lord, not perfectly, but you've walked with the Lord all of these years. You don't really remember as an adult to have world-class sins that haunt you. Justification is great hope for people that come to Jesus as adults and they were alive long enough to have some kind of memory of their sin and justification gives you great hope because you not only are forgiven, but you being accepted by God doesn't depend on your good life. It depends on the righteousness of Jesus. That's great hope right there. There's another implication. Uh, another implication is that God will not require the penalty of our sins. God will not. When you're in Christ, God does not punish you because of your sins. That's something to get a hold of. It doesn't, it doesn't sound right to us. It doesn't sound fair. We're all about fairness here in the United States. In Jesus, the punishment has been put on Jesus. All right, that's justification. Let's talk a little bit about adoption. Adoption. So I'll try to say, i put the summary down uh, there in front of you. Adoption. <clears throat> adoption is the mighty act of God to take sinful people, enemies, enemies that are alienated and separated from Him, 
to take enemies and then incorporate them into his family as beloved children. So, so we have here on earth uh, the, the act of adoption, right? Which is a pretty good picture of the gospel, but not completely. My boys are adopted. Our children are adopted. But I didn't adopt enemies. I didn't have to be a Christian to the two-year-old and the six-month-old, little, two little brothers that need a home. You just had to have a heart for that, right? So, and they were small, and who knew that they would grow up like they were going to? They looked right, you know. <laughs> you have all this sympathy. You feel because there's some sort of intrinsic right value that you, you want these children. We're not able to have kids, so having these children, there's this impulse to, to, to adopt. That, that's where the correlation breaks down, because in in salvation, when God adopts us, it's not like he looked down and thought, look, look how cute he is. <laughs> right? He, what he saw is an enemy. It's like you going to the county jail and finding the worst person in this city and saying, hey, won't you? I'd, I'd like to sign everything over to you. You can take my name, too. That's what he's done for us in Jesus. So adoption is, it's not just that it's a picture. The, the real idea of adoption is he's taken enemies now and brought them. I mean, right, so my children, they have my, my son, Mac. His name is Clinton McCrory Presley. His, his, uh, his middle name is Mac. It's actually McCrory after my mom's dad who was in World War II. So we named him Mac and I uh, always had envisioned you know, Mac and Nate, they're monosyllabic names, so they would sound good on a, you know, being announced at a football field. Mac Presley on the tackle. It didn't really play out like that, but that's sort of what I had in mind. But all of the legal documents with, with his name, his name is ex- almost exactly like mine. He gets everything. Him and Nate, they both do at some point. Why? Legally and family. Adoption is a couple of things has two aspects. You'll see it. See it down there. It's the application of God's work in Christ. What happens when He saves us? He doesn't just forgive us and, 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 and legally justify us and see us righteous. We have this. There are two aspects. It's legal and it's relational. Legal and relational. I'll give you what I mean by that. I'll go through it quickly. When we are adopted in Jesus, it's a change of status. A change of status. This is great news right here. But Paul writes in Galatians 4, so you're no longer a slave. Now don't get, let this confuse you with what Paul has said in Romans chapter 1. He introduced himself as a slave of Christ. Here, uh, the difference is you are no longer a slave as a slave to sin. So adoption means you're no longer a slave, but you now are a son. That is a change. Anybody been to Arlington before? In Washington, Arlington? Okay, you know that uh, Arlington House, um, that was the Custis House where uh, Robert E. Lee married into that family, and they lived in that mansion. 
and outside of the Arlington home, there are, there are houses outside in the yard. Those are the slave quarters, right? You can read all about that when uh, the Union and the Confederacy were fighting and the Union took the house and actually started burying the, the soldiers that were being killed in the Civil War in the yard there. That's how Arlington Cemetery essentially came to be. So, so you walk into that place, there are two different houses where two different kinds of people live. And Paul is saying, look, adoption means God has walked into the slave quarters and now said, you stay in here. And not only that, it belongs to you. There's a, there's a change in status, right? Not only a change in status, there's a change in relationship. You can back up in Galatians 4, uh, back up to verse 6. Because you are sons... This is a liberating thing. Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, Holy Spirit, into our hearts, and because of that, we cry, Abba, that's the kind of an Aramaic word for closeness, Abba, Father. That's a change in relationship. Now, it, it feels good to say that all, all the people on the planet, are all, we're all God's children. We are not all God's children. Everybody with me on this so far? It sounds good, it's absolutely wrong. We all have been made in the image of God. Every person that's ever lived was made with the Imago Dei, the image of God, right? That image has been disfigured because of sin. But just because we're made in the image of God does not mean we are God's children. The only way you are God's children is through adoption. We are not naturally God's children. Naturally, we are sinners separated from God. What we need is Christ, who then has made us right and made it so that we are changed relationally. A person outside of being a Christian has no right to call God Father. And He, God has no obligation to respond to someone outside of Christ. My children are not, they are not biological. They're not one drop of my blood that runs through either one of those boys. They could probably use a little bit of it. but they don't, Not one drop, right? Not one drop, but legally... Legally and relationally, they have every right. I don't feel like that about anybody else's children. I, I mean, I like them, and I hope they do well. I don't have an obligation as a father to them. Same is true for those that are in Christ. Those that are in Christ, by virtue of the conversion and adoption, by virtue of you being saved, God now has a greater obligation to you as His children. There is a covenant made in Christ. You belong to Him. It's the covenant of grace. You became a Christian. You became a child of God. It, cha it changed forever the relationship you have with God. Change of relationship. I'll give you a third thing. Not only a change of relationship, I would say a change of... Community. Change of community. Is it cold or hot in here to y'all? 
I knew that. I see somebody got gloves on back there. I, I, you know, I knew that because I actually feel pretty good. And I thought, I bet if I feel good, everybody is freezing. Y'all want to stand up and do some jumping jacks? Y'all want to do that? That'll help you feel better? We're almost done? Almost done. Okay. <laughs> Hurry up. I'm coming. Let's go. <laughs> you know, you've been, when you've been at a church long enough where people just feel like they can just say whatever they want to to you. Nah, you just hurry up, preacher. We're tired of hearing you talk. It's cold in here. All right, so we had a change in relationship. And the third thing is there's a change in community. So look, look, look at this change. Uh, Galatians 3, verse 26, 27, 28. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. So that's sons and daughters. So think about everybody in here. So all of us in here. Sons and you are sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ... You've put on Christ. There's the righteousness. So now, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. This is the church right here. There is no relationship that you can have that's anything like the kind of relationship you have with the people you go to church with. For, for those of you that are in Christ. And you've known, you've met other people that are believers that, are, that you've never met before, go on vacation or something, you meet someone who's a Christian, you automatically, automatically have fellowship, right? Because of this right here. There's this, this, this great equality. This speaks to all manner of things. This speaks to sexism. This speaks to sexism. This speaks to racism. This speaks to classism. This speaks to, to the church not centering <clears throat> on, on things that draw us together outside of Jesus. In other words, hopefully what brings you here is, is not that you found a group of people that like to ride motorcycles like you do. So you've got a motorcycle club and that sort of draws you together. Or in this room, well, you know, we've got all our kids are about the same age. And so that's really what sort of glues us together. When the truth of the matter is, the greatest picture of the gospel is to have unbelievable diversity and yet great unity because of what Jesus has done for us. Because we are sons and daughters of God, and if sons and daughters of God, in Jesus we are brothers and sisters to one another. You know, they used to say that to each other. It would sound weird now doing it, but it used to when you go to church, <clears throat> it would, you would address a person as brother or sister. It's not all bad to do that. In fact, the two churches I served in Mississippi, my first two churches, I was nine years before I ever preached to a room of more than 100 people. And uh, it was always Brother Clint. I even, I even used to sign, if I, if I wrote somebody a card, I would sign it, Bro Clint. <laughs> that's true, that's right, yeah. I got so used to being called Brother now, it, it would feel weird here, but the sentiment behind it is right. We actually do belong to one another. Change of community. One more thing and I'll be done. I'm hurting it up. Number four, a change of destiny. Destiny. Ephesians, I love Ephesians. Listen to the destiny. Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, 
that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. All of this is operating according to God's will in Jesus. And it alters who we are. For instance, without Christ, we were all going to hell. We were living meaningless lives. Who knows where we were headed and what would happen to us. We stood condemned in the courtroom of God and Satan rightly stood and pointed to us and said he deserves hell and the gavel fell and that's where we went. In Jesus, Jesus Christ took whatever penalty we Whatever penalty we were supposed to have at the cross, and therefore we are forgiven, so our sins are washed away. But not only that, we then have been given the righteousness of Christ, and it has changed forever. Where we spend eternity, how we live our lives here, the community of people we are with, how we view one another, how we think about the future, what we do with our own guilt, it changes our destiny. Two beautiful things to hold on to are the words justification, and adoption. You are no longer guilty before God. You're forgiven. Not only that, you have the righteousness of Jesus and because of that, you've been brought into the family of God and you have all of the rights and benefits including the right to call God Father. It's a good place for us to stop and go to the Lord. Close in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grace you've given us in Jesus and receiving us as sons and daughters of God. That our sins are forgiven. That we have put on us the righteousness of Jesus. Thank you for that. Lord, may we, may we rejoice more in that truth. May we be more thankful. Lord, make me more thankful. Lord, may we focus on your goodness. And Father, when we see people, when you put people in our path tomorrow, may we have the joyful boldness enough to speak the name of Jesus. Father, wake us up in enough time tomorrow to spend time in your word. Bring us back here Sunday ready to worship with our family. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, everybody. You're dismissed.